Um, it's a joy to be with you. Um, on my sabbatical, some of you have wondered how it was, and I'm not going to tell you any more about it after today, all right? I'm looking forward to 52 verses of Psalm 89 next week, but now I'll tell you a little bit more about my sabbatical. Um, uh, about halfway point in the sabbatical, Michelle and I took a trip up to Queens to our, our new friends at North Shore Baptist Church. I think earlier in the year I had mentioned making a connection through a mutual friend of ours with uh, the pastor of that church, Ed Moore, and uh, he invited us to come up. There was a one-day pastor's conference, going to be on a Monday, and he asked us to come up on Sunday. Their church has a monthly evening service, and so he invited us to come and be a part of the worship and fellowship that night and give a little update to the church there about how the sabbatical was going. They'd been praying for me and for us. And so uh, we went up there uh, on a Sunday afternoon, and we had a wonderful evening uh, with them. And we were getting ready to leave. It was about 7.30, and we had this, Michelle and I had decided ahead of time we are going to go there for fellowship, and we were going to sneak out and, and get back to the hotel. It had been a long day, and we knew the next day was going to be a long day. And so we were, we were just going to sneak out and get some, some rest uh, that night, early bed. We like that in the Lazarus household, early bed. Um, and, and, and then Ed asked us, as we were getting ready to head out, he, he said, hey, come, come over into my office for a few minutes. And we're like, well, what is this all about? And went into his office. <clears throat> it's not good if I'm already losing my voice. Went into his office, and there were about a dozen people in the office, mostly actually speakers who were going to be sharing at the conference the next day, a few North Shore members, and and Ed sits us all down in a circle, and he says, now, we we have a great opportunity tonight. Uh, There's a former member of our church. He lives in a um, high-rise apartment complex a little farther down in Queens, and there's an amazing rooftop view of the Manhattan skyline, Uh, and, and so they've got the church vans out front and want to know who of you wants to come. And so he starts going around in a circle. Uh, who's in? And everyone is in. Um, everyone is like, in, in, in. And, and, and I look at Michelle, and I said, um, we're, uh, no, you know what, we're going we're gonna, to, so it's a long day, we're going we're gonna to pass. And uh, Ed is a wonderful man. He's a very loving and affectionate man, but he also has a, this sternness to him. So he was kind of like, huh. Okay, so Lazaruses are out, okay? And then he just kind of moved on. And, and he, he's not a bully kind of a person. But it, but I, and I was sitting there, and I'm starting to get tense. He's going around the rest of the room, and everyone else is in. And so he's kind of making arrangements, and he says, okay, so every, Lazaruses, you're out. Is that right? <laughs> and I had been, while this rest of the identifying of who was going was happening. I was kind of whispering to Michelle, I, said, I think, you know, I, said, I don't think it'll take that long. He said, it'd be just about an hour, and I, I think it'd be good. And she said, you know, I thought we said we were going to do that. We're having this conversation, you know, and, and, and she said, listen, whatever you want to do. And so, so he had come back to me. Lazarus says, you're, you're out. We're in, we're in, we're going, we're going. So we're going. And so we, we went, and it was, it was really fun, actually. It was a beautiful, it really was a beautiful scene, uh, but it did not take an hour. <laughs> it took a little bit more than an hour. We got in late. We did not sleep well. Uh, and the next morning, 
Uh, right as we were getting ready to leave for the church, for the conference, Michelle came down with a bad migraine. And while I was supposed to be enjoying the con, while we were both supposed to be enjoying the conference, uh, Michelle was laid out in the back seat of our car uh, just trying to sleep because that's all she could do. Um, the day was a, it was a big letdown. Uh, she missed some time. She was looking forward to some time with the pastor's wives and some fellowship. She couldn't make it. And um, it was basically all because I had been too concerned about how I appeared that night before other people than I was about loving my wife and doing what I knew was best for her in that moment. Now, the long-term effects of that uh, misprioritization were, were none. Okay. Thankfully, by the time we left, we left early, we left right after lunch because Michelle was just sleeping in the car. Uh, so we, we left and we got home, and even by the time we got home, she was feeling a, l- a little bit better. Uh, she wasn't angry with me. She was very gracious about the thing, and, and it was no big deal. But what was happening in my soul during those couple of minutes in Pastor Ed's office, what the Bible calls the fear of man, can have much greater uh, ministry-endangering, even soul-threatening results. Um, A sinful fear of displeasing others, of coveting the approval of people, is a serious obstacle to fully pleasing Christ in the sort of way that we talked about last Sunday, if you were here, and we looked at those words from Colossians chapter 1. Seeking an inordinate concern with pleasing other people is a hindrance to faithfully serving Jesus. And it is that for pastors, but I don't think it's only that for pastors. I think it is that for all of us who are seeking to faithfully serve Jesus. So how was my sabbatical? Well, let me tell you just one more layer to how my sabbatical was. It was a season in which I was chastened by the Lord for the way that an excessive concern about the approval of other people had done some damage to my soul and I believe had sucked some joy out of my service to the Lord that I was meant to have. And Galatians 1.10 has been God's megaphone by which he has blasted that admonition into my consciousness, where uh, one of my spiritual heroes, the Apostle Paul, says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, he said, I would not be a servant of Christ. What I see to be the main idea there in that verse, if I could just restate it a little bit differently, is that an inordinate craving to please other people is incompatible with serving Jesus faithfully. That's, that's the main idea that I want to convey to you this morning. Uh, an inordinate craving to please people is incompatible with serving Jesus faithfully. And to help us think a little bit more about that, I'd like us to consider uh, two, two points. One, the problem of pleasing people. And then two, the privilege of serving Christ. The problem of pleasing people is that you can't do it and actually at the same time, honestly, sincerely serve Jesus. The two are mutually exclusive. Do you see that in Galatians 1.10? Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, 
I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't do both of them. That's what Paul articulates there in Galatians 1.10. And it's a problem, especially because even as that anecdote, I wonder if it is what illustrated to you, maybe you have your own illustrations of this, but that, that was a, an illustration for me of how easy it is for us to be absorbed with gaining and keeping the approval of other people. That's a significant struggle for human beings, and it is incompatible with serving Jesus faithfully. Paul is saying these words. Again, we're, we're jumping into Galatians, into a, a passage, and, and I, I can't give you a ton of context, but Paul is writing this at the beginning of his letter to the Galatians because it seems as though false, well, there, there were, we know, false teachers had infiltrated that church, and they were teaching Uh, very similar actually to what we saw last week in Colossians, a a Jesus plus religion. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision. You also need obedience to the Jewish law. And, And they were accusing Paul, these false teachers were accusing Paul of being somewhat of a people pleaser, that he was watering down and changing the message to make it more palatable to other people. And so Paul is very direct. There is an attack on the gospel which is happening amongst the churches in Galatia. And so Paul writes to them very uh, severely. He he gives, if your, your Bibles are open, if you look at the beginning of Galatians, he does his preliminary greeting. This is Paul. Grace to you and peace. But then normally what he does, if you read Paul's other letters to the churches, is he'll spend a few sentences praising God for how he sees God at work in these churches. He does that with the Ephesians, he does it with the Colossians, he does it regularly, but here he skips those pleasantries and he cuts right to the heart of the matter. Look at verse 6 of Galatians 1. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed accursed. And that's the, I mean, that's what he's saying that leads to this statement. For am I, am I still trying to please man? You can see how words so strong and so severe would be a loud protest to the charge that you're a people pleaser, right? This, I mean, telling a group of people that the ones that they've been recently enamored with and influenced by are, are, are under a curse from God are to be damned for bringing a false gospel to them. That is not in the playbook of how to win friends and influence people. It does not please most people to be told that they're entertaining a way of thinking that leads to eternal damnation. Uh, Later in this letter, he tells, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's like a, someone has cast a spell upon them. He calls them foolish. This is not the way someone would be talking who is absorbed with concern with how people perceive him. But Paul's goal, his whole reason for living, 
was not to please people, but was to serve Christ, to please Christ. As he says in chapter 4, verse 19, to see Christ formed in those whom he was sent to. And that will necessarily involve speaking hard words to other people, words that might arouse the displeasure and disapproval of you, the messenger. Right? Have you experienced this? You have experienced Many of you, most of you, you have experienced this in some way. I mean, the, the basic message that we're called to take to the world in service to King Jesus is that, is that people are going to hell. I understand, I understand we don't maybe lead with that line. I'm not telling you you should lead with that sentence. But the, real, the, the message that we have for people is that humans who have been made by God to worship him and serve him and give him thanks and praise have rebelled against him. And in, rather than serving him, they have served themselves. And so they are under the judgment and curse of God. And they deserve to have eternal conscious torment as the righteous punishment for having defied his loving and wise rule. And yet, the good news, and I I offer this good news to you this morning, even if you've never heard the basic message of Christianity and what it's about, let me invite you right now to recognize that you have sinned against God. You have rebelled against him and gone your own way, and yet we gather not because of that bad news, but we, we gather because of the wonderful news that God, who is rich in mercy, mercy and love, sent his own son, and Jesus, the eternal son of God, willingly came and took on flesh and died on a cross so that those of us, all of us, who deserve hell might be forgiven of our sins, cleansed from our filth, and brought into a right relationship with God through Jesus alone. If you've not believed that message, we would call you and urge you to trust in him today. But that's the reality, that's a hard word to speak to people, that they are so guilty and so helpless before God that only the death of God's Son could free us from the misery and woe that we have earned for ourselves. And there are many in our day, even who are gathering today in churches, who are teaching a version of that gospel that's not really that gospel. We were talking about this a little bit after dinner last night, that that there's ways that we seek to take this message. It's not our message. It's God's message, but there are ways that we seek to adjust it and soften some of those rough edges and make it more palatable rather than honestly tell people what God has said, which is our duty to Jesus as his servants. And there are, I mean, it's it's called today progressive Christianity. It's really people-pleasing Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. This gospel that we take to the world, it is the wisdom and power of God for those of us who are being saved. But to those, to a world that is perishing, it is foolishness. And so devotion to that message is not going to win us a popularity contest. Even the desire to have, even this commitment to spread the gospel of salvation to the ends of the earth means dying to the desire of being well thought of by other people. Jesus actually said, in Luke chapter 6, he said, woe to you. And he wasn't just talking to pastors. He was just talking to his disciples. He said, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Because that's how the false prophets were regarded. 
And it's not only true, this, this potential for displeasing other people is not only true for our evangelism, our spreading the gospel, but also as we seek to help people mature once they have committed to Jesus, to help them grow up in their faith. Because as Paul, I just picked this up, I'm putting it down now, at some point I'll take a drink. Um, As Paul says later in this letter in chapter 5, even those of us who have been redeemed, who have the Holy Spirit living in us, there still is this principle of the flesh, the sinful nature that is warring against the Holy Spirit. So there's still a battle going on even in us followers of Jesus and therefore to help each other to grow in Jesus, that's going to necessarily involve giving and receiving some hard words. And it's not easy to do that. It is a battle, I think, for all of us. We, we want to be liked. It's, that, I mean, it's reasonable. We want to be well thought of by others. I want to be well thought of by you. I'm sitting here listening to Bob read the text and pray, and I'm concerned, how are you going to like this message? As I did some study about this subject of fear of man, and particularly as it pertains to pastoral ministry, I came across this article, and the author said this. He said, pastoral ministry is full of no-win decisions. Because of this, ministry is a miserable place for a pastor who needs everyone's approval. Even Siri thought that was a good point. I don't think that's only an issue or a problem for pastors. All of us are called to the ministry of speaking God's word, calling the lost to be saved, speaking words to help others grow up in Jesus. And so I think it's appropriate for all of us to consider how this inordinate craving for the approval of other people may be affecting you. In your, in your relationships with your, your family, your wife if you're married, your husband, children, neighbors, coworkers, I mean, it could go on and on. Is your main concern, when you interact with them, how are they perceiving me? How are they feeling about me? What do they think about me? Instead of, how can I be a servant of Jesus to advance his purposes in this person's life? It is, I'm just telling you about my own life and experience, but I think of this, I'm preaching this sermon because I think others of you will be able to resonate with this. this. Sadly, I oftentimes, my thoughts as I'm speaking to somebody, as I'm preparing for a meeting, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking more about how people might respond to what I'm going to say than I am about whether Jesus will be pleased with what I'm about to say. And that kind of people pleasing, when we just are living to garner the approval and the applause of other people, it becomes exhausting. It's an exhausting treadmill of trying to manage situations and conversations and relationships, and it's, it's dishonoring to God, but it's also just foolish because you can't possibly, and you've learned this, and yet you still give yourselves to trying to live this way, at least I do. You know that you cannot possibly make everybody happy. It's not possible. 
and yet we still give ourselves to it. There, there's an author uh, named Lou Priolo wrote a book about this issue, The Fear of Man. He said, there may be no more powerful argument to persuade you to stop seeking the approval of man than that of the profound folly, futility, and utter impossibility of trying to please all of the people, even some of the time. It can't be done. And I do think that is a persuasive argument. I don't think it's the most persuasive argument, though, to get us to turn away from this unhealthy, sinful desire for the approval and applause of other people. I would like to suggest another, uh, I believe, even more persuasive and powerful argument to uh, help you to stop seeking the approval of people, and that is the one that I have been reflecting upon for the past couple of months, and it is the privilege, point number two, the privilege of serving Christ. That's how Paul resists this temptation to live for man's approval. He says it in Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Uh, Literally, the word order in the original language is changed, and, and it says, if I were still trying to please man, Christ's servant, I would not be. It's a little Yoda-like in, in, in the way that that sounds. But I think it front-loads this absorption with Christ. If I were still trying to please man, Christ's servant, I wouldn't be. Paul was absorbed. He was consumed with Christ. He belonged to Christ, and he knew that himself, his life, his responsibility to other people, it was all for Christ. Ever, always, only, all for thee, for Christ. And that's, that's Paul's commitment as a servant of the Lord. And our, our calling as the Lord's servant is different than Paul's. Paul was an apostle. We are not apostles, but all of us who have come to Jesus in faith are servants of Christ. Uh, we're told even on that, that last day, this, the last chapter of the Bible, when, when the new heavens and the new earth come and we are with our King in glory, it says in Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed. <sighs> Don't you just long for that day. I just didn't know where to get a glimpse of heaven into that sermon was, and so I just decided to put it right here because I wanted to say something. Oh, that day, no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We all, all of us who have come to Jesus in faith, we are servants of Christ. We take that title as our own to affirm that we're not our own anymore. We are owned and we are possessed by another. We are his purchased property, his slaves, his subjects totally submitted to him in exclusive, undivided allegiance. That is, the, that is the response that any of us would have to beholding one who has so richly and generously and sacrificially served us. Jesus was the perfect servant of God, his Father, perfectly pure in his devotion to the will of his Father all the time. It was said of Jesus even in the Psalms, and we know it was said of Jesus because of what the writer of Hebrews says 
it was said of Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will. Your law is within my heart. And yet we know, what we know about the life of Jesus is that often his, in giving himself to doing the will of his Father put him at odds with other people, made him the object of scorn and disdain and misunderstanding and hatred from other people. The very first time he engaged in public ministry in Luke chapter 4, where he was giving a message, all the crowds were, were uh, raving about how wonderful he was, and then he turns on them and says, hey, actually, I'm coming, there's Gentiles coming into this, and it says on that very day, they went from extolling him and praising him, they tried to then throw him off a cliff. That was day one of Jesus' public ministry. We know Isaiah told of us that he would be a man who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was despised and rejected because he did not live his life trying to figure out, how can I say something or do something here to make people think well of me? He was known for saying hard things. Even his enemies, it was, I think, a form of flattery, But even the religious leaders said of Jesus, they said to Jesus, they wanted to trap him in something that he would say. And they said, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Literally, you don't look at people's faces, but you truly teach the way of God. That's the way Jesus lived his life. I mean, it might be a good exercise for you this week to just read through one of the Gospels. And you pick any one of them. And just read through it somewhat quickly and watch about how, watch how much of Jesus' life and ministry was him engaging in words, saying things that absolutely offended people. It was his whole life. It even marked the, the, on the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross And if the fear of man, if an undue concern to please people and to have people thinking great things of him had been consuming Jesus on the cross, he would have come down. He was taunted and mocked on the cross. Come down, they yelled at him, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah. And rather, he could have come down. He could have really impressed them and made people think well of him in some way. But he stayed on the cross. And he stayed there because that's the reason that he had come. The Christ, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though Jesus was in the form of God, Paul said to the Philippians, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did it for those of us who had aroused God's righteous wrath for worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And the primary creature that we are all worshiping and serving is the creature that we see when we look in the mirror. That's really the issue with the fear of man, with people-pleasing. It's not really that it's actually about those other people. It's about what those other people think about me. We have life and breath and everything, 
to call attention to him, and yet we live so much of our lives consumed with how people are thinking of us. It's evil. It's an offense against the very reason we were made. And when God could have justly condemned us to hell, Jesus willingly came as a servant, giving his life to die and bear the punishment that we deserve for our traitorous rebellion, for the the glory thief that we are. He came and he died for us, cleansing us so that we might serve him in fear and gladness all of our days. How did Paul get that mind that he articulates there in Galatians 1? I'm not about pleasing man. I'm about serving Christ. Well, he tells us one of his secrets in Galatians 2.20. I know this is a precious verse. Some of you have this stamped on the front of your Bible. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew himself to be an enemy of Christ, and he saw the love of Christ rescuing him when he was seeking to kill and murder other people for worshiping Jesus. God changed him literally and spiritually, knocked him off his horse, changed his course, gave him a new mission in life that whatever he did, his life would be lived in reliance upon to glorify the one who had loved him and given himself for him. That is the Lord Jesus. This is the remedy for that unhealthy regard, that absorption with concern for the opinions of other people. Sit down, one Puritan writer has said. Here's the remedy. Here's the proper fear of Christ. We're worshiping God our fear. We, we don't want to fear others. We don't want to live in fear of other people. How do we do that? We have a healthy, right fear for the Lord Jesus. What does that sound like? Well, one Puritan Sounded like this. Sit down, he says, Christians, and wonder at this condescending love of God. What is in thy soul or in my soul that should cause the Lord to give such gifts to us as he has given? We were all equal in sin and misery. We were once poor wretches sitting upon the dunghill, yea, wallowing in our blood. And yet, behold, The King of kings, the Lord of lords, has so far condescended in his love as to bestow himself, his spirit, his grace, and all the jewels of his royal crown upon us. Oh, what heart can conceive, what tongue can express this matchless love? I will be thine forever, says Christ. And my spirit shall be thine forever. And my grace shall be thine forever. And my glory shall be thine forever. And my righteousness shall be thine forever. All I am and all I have shall be thine forever. Oh, beloved, what condescending love is this? Oh, what a Christ is this? And so Paul says, I'm not trying to please man. How could I do that and be Christ's servant? Do you see why why I call it an overwhelming, unspeakable, precious privilege to be called Christ's servant? 
What an undeserved dignity that he has bestowed upon us, wallowing in the dunghill of our sin as it were, that we might be raised up with him through faith in Jesus, cleansed, forgiven, adopted into God's family, and made Christ's servant. Kids, kids, I wonder if you have thought about what you want to be when you grow up. I bet you have thought about it. You have some ideas. And there's lots of good things that you can do when you grow up that can honor God. But I want you to know, kids, that there's nothing more worthwhile. That's a bad word to use with kids. There's nothing better that you can do, kids. There's nothing better that you can do with your life than to give yourself to serving the Lord to serving Jesus. You might start feeling this already, kids. You might get very upset, even angry, when people say something mean to you or about you or they don't like you or they don't invite you to the party. You might get very upset because other people aren't uh, paying attention to you the way you want them to be. And that's hard. We adults have to live with that too. It's hard when that happens but it's actually a gracious lesson that God is teaching us to not put our hope in what other people think about us. We shouldn't hope in what our parents think of us or our friends or our siblings because the love of people changes, but the love of Jesus never changes. He gave his life so that you could be in a relationship with him and that you could find your joy in serving him. And there's no better way that you can spend your days than to spend them serving Jesus. We, we waste our time in a lot of ways. But there is never one moment of our lives wasted when we're serving Jesus. Well, beloved, I trust that if you have been captivated by Jesus that it is your desire to serve him and to please him. But I also know that an unhealthy and persistent craving for the esteem and approval of people may be a serious threat to your devoted service to King Jesus. So I, I want to just close here with three. Uh, they're not going to be nine this week. Okay. So nine application points, maybe not wise last week. Got some healthy feedback. It's okay. How about Three. Uh, number one, aim to please people in the right God-honoring way. Aim to please people in the right God-honoring way. Perhaps it's a little bit strange after all these negative things I'm saying about pleasing people that I would say that there is a God-honoring right way to please people, but there is. And we know that because the same apostle who spoke so strongly that he was not a people pleaser in Galatians 1, the apostle Paul also wrote these words to the Corinthians. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Whoa, what? I'm trying to please everyone in everything I do, Paul says, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. The kind of pleasing people that Paul encourages has one driving purpose, and it is not that what people think of me, it is Christ. 
It is helping people to be pleased in Jesus. I'm not seeking my own advantage. I'm trying to please everyone in everything I do. Why? That they may be saved. That they might know the Lord. With everything Paul said and did, he wanted to draw people to Jesus so that they might be saved. And so let's not only be what we're against, right? We don't want to please people sinfully by putting people's interests above Christ's interests, but we want to understand that the right, true way to actually please people is to help them as much as we can to help them be pleased with Christ. I will say that part again because this is so, so, so important in our culture. Because our culture has defined love in such a way that basically the way that you will be a loving person is to help people be pleased with themselves. But if you really want to please people, you got this impulse, you're a people pleaser. If you really want to please people, enduringly, really, eternally please people, help them find themselves more and more in Jesus. You will please other people best when you seek to please them with the unsearchable riches of Christ. So aim to properly please others with his view in mind, which is to please them with Christ. Application number two, uh, pray. Matt already modeled this for us in his pastoral prayer. So thank you for that, brother. We did not connect about that. But pray that our church would increasingly cultivate a relational environment in which it's normal and expected for members to be intimately involved in each other's lives. I'm not saying that doesn't happen at all currently. I'm saying let's pray that it happen more and more and characterize us as a congregation more and more. That it would be normal among us to ask and answer questions like, how is your soul? How are you doing? And then just put that, really, really, how are you doing? What have you been reading in God's word recently that has encouraged you? What's a challenge or a burden that you're facing that I can be praying for? We want to have a culture in our church where we're learning to take risks in our relationships for the sake of growing in grace and in godliness. So pray that God would grow such a culture among us where we're not so concerned about people and what they think of us. We're so concerned about growing in godliness that we're free to share with each other about how we're really doing. And then thirdly, take a step in answering that prayer by inviting godly correction into your life. Be proactive in inviting godly correction into your life. Work to be the kind of person who is easy to correct. Invite people to know you. Invite their feedback. Confess sin. Uh, Risk embarrassment. I... I'm debating whether to say something right now. On the tail end of my sabbatical, I open myself up to the elders of our church to seek their feedback on my life and my ministry. Uh, I've told you, unless it's your first Sunday amongst us, you know that when I started the sabbatical, I was not at a real healthy place in my soul and in my attitude towards ministry. I've been very free and I've been open in telling you about that. I asked the elders on the tail end of my sabbatical for them to communicate with me 
their perspective on my life and my ministry. I asked them specifically, what is it that frustrates you or concerns you about serving with me? I asked them to uh, let me know how they would like to see me growing spiritually in the next year. And it was hard to seek that kind of feedback. And I trust it was hard for them to give it. They did give it. They wrote me a, a letter, and then we got together, and we talked about it. And it was, it was hard. Uh, they, were, they were honest. Some things stung. Wasn't, wasn't sure that I actually agreed about every single detail of it. But it was really good. And I think that they were maybe helped a little bit. In fact, I think one of the elders, who I'll, I'll, I'll keep nameless, but I think one of the elders I remember saying that it was that I invited it, just freed them up to be able to share honestly with me and to resist the understandable but sinful inclination to just please me and help me to feel good about myself. They were honest with me. They were loving me. And I think we could all do that for each other. Free people up to be honest with you by actually proactively asking them, do you see anything displeasing to the Lord in me? I I, want to hear. We need to be very, if we're asked that question, we must be very delicate in how we address that, how we answer that question. Galatians 6.1 says, "If if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore one in a spirit of what? Do you know, saints? There's some whispering, gentleness. We need to be very delicate with that word. But I think it's an appropriate thing to ask. Not just as a pastor to his fellow pastors, but just as believers in Christ who want to love and serve and grow in Jesus. Is there anything in me that, that you see that is concerning to you about where I'm at? If we have no relationships where that kind of thing is happening, we're in, we're in dangerous territory spiritually. Because God's word says that we're to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Without the exhortation of other people, we can be blinded to our own issues. And we need the loving admonitions and corrections of others to help us see ourselves accurately. So take a a risk and invite that. And if the idea of doing such a thing freaks you out, Can I just remind you of the gospel one more time? Uh, That book I mentioned a few weeks ago, A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. He gives 31 reasons why we should rehearse the gospel. Here's just one of them, and I think it speaks so much to this issue, about the fear that we have of being real and open, inviting corrections, and really together loving each other in some hard ways to grow in Jesus. He says this, the cross exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depth of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and am seen by others under the light of that cross, I am left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Calvary's hill, and my self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. With the worst facts about me thus exposed to the view of others, 
I find myself feeling that I truly have nothing left to hide. Do you understand what he's saying, beloved? If that's our hope of salvation and eternal life, and we all know that about each other, then it's real clear. We're just making it, we're just taking our stand real clearly to say, I'm desperately wicked and I need help from outside of me. And when we reckon that and when we own that, we know that help ultimately, all of it comes from the Lord. But when we admit that honestly with each other, we're free to be real about the struggles that we're still facing in that Galatians 5 tension of the spirit warring against the flesh and the flesh warring. We just be real. I'm utterly needy for what the cross represents, boasting only in the cross of the Lord Jesus. So help me, love me, and I'll do the same for you. Let's give great thanks for the gospel, beloved, and let's seek to serve Jesus faithfully as we live in the freedom from fear that he has won for us all. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be more and more and more captivated by Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. Let my song forever be my boast. My only boast is you. Help us to boast only in Jesus and in his cross. And would, would your cross especially slay this enemy of pride and the fear of man that still wars against us. Help us to love Jesus, to cling to Jesus, to find our joy in serving Jesus, and help us to love each other as you have so richly loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.